Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. In 2019, Sam Goodwin was just 13 countries away from reaching his goal of visiting every country when he headed for Syria. The St. Louis-raised man was taking precautions to make the trip safely, but his visit took a very wrong turn when he was wrongfully accused of espionage. Goodwin was held in Syria's notorious prison system and spent time in solitary confinement in a windowless cement cell. He had no way of knowing if he'd get to return to his home country or see his family again. After 63 days, Goodwin was reunited with his parents in Beirut, Lebanon, and he's here with us today to talk about his experience in Syria and the forthcoming book he's written about the ways coincidence, connection, and community led to his release. Sam, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Hi, Elaine. Thanks for having me. Visiting all the countries around the world is not an uncommon dream, but it's something that you are actively working to accomplish. And as we said in the introduction, um, you were not very far away, just over a dozen from completing that. Now you knew that conditions in Syria were dangerous for Syrians, let alone for tourists from outside the country. Why did you decide to visit Syria? So one of the things that I learned through travel, one of the most significant things I learned is that places that are negatively perceived or that Western media tells us we're not supposed to like. These were places where I often had many of my best experiences. And I really believe in promoting the beauty and the positivity of places that are are lesser known or, as I said, negatively perceived. So I was on a journey to travel to every country in the world. And travel for me was always about it was never about ticking boxes or, or checking places off a list. It was about learning. Travel's the best education I've ever had. So it was about, it, it, I was on a journey. I was on a methodical pilgrimage, and the journey was to travel to every country in the world, and that's why I went to Syria. Mm-hmm. What were some of the precautions that you took before you even entered the country? Yeah, so for me, safety was always the top priority everywhere that I went. Um, I don't think it's cool to be in unsafe situations. And leading up to this trip specifically, I worked with a handful of local experts and fixers and people familiar with the region. I also followed the exact path of several other travelers, which I found to be among the best ways to ensure safety, uh, in addition to securing all of the necessary uh, documentation and entry permission to to enter the country as I did. Mm-hmm. Now, even with all of that prep um, and going in very conscious of what you needed to be aware of, I mean, as far as you could tell, why was it that you were arrested there? Was there something that you were doing? Were you in the wrong place? So, frankly, I think for a lot of uh, people who are wrongfully detained or taken hostage or simply in the wrong place at the wrong time, for me... I am still gathering information about this. I don't have uh, security clearance or access to classified information, and I'm still learning about some of the things that uh, may or may not have have happened. 
But uh, at this point, uh, the answer to that question is still a little bit unclear to me. Mm-hmm. So the detainment itself, you were taken first to a detention site called Branch 215, where you were held in solitary confinement for many days. What is it that went through your mind, Sam, in those early days of detention? I was stunned and in disbelief about what had happened in just a few short hours. My life had spiraled out of control in the most terrifying of ways. I felt exactly the way they wanted me to, hopeless, utterly cut off from any control of my life. And during that time, I leaned on a handful of things for strength and leaned on perspectives that had developed from traveling to different corners of the world, which provoked gratitude for just the basic food and water I was being given. I leaned on skills and traits I developed from being a competitive athlete, the mental toughness, critical thinking, resilience. I leaned on a belief that I had a purpose in life and a desire to see family and friends again. Most importantly, I leaned on my faith. I'm a devout Catholic, and I believe that this was not the end. And that combination of those things, especially my faith, were what what I really thought about and what I really leaned on for strength Mm -hmm. in that situation. Yeah. Now, you did move to another facility. Um, After a few weeks, you were moved to Adra Prison, and it was an upgrade from the first place because you were no longer alone there. And the, the solidarity and support that you got from your fellow prisoners at this prison was really extraordinary. Sam, what was it like to be amongst men who were so different from you, yet who so quickly became your friends and in those circumstances? Yep. So Adra was an upgrade. And I think there are many lessons that I learned at Adra around humanity that I think are relevant to all of us wherever we are in the world. But one of the most significant things I had learned through travel and was reinforced in that time is that the overwhelming majority of people in the world are well-intentioned, proud of their country, happy to help others. And oftentimes there can be a small subset of people who give a larger group a bad rap. But that was my experience everywhere in the world, having gone to every country. And it was also what I experienced in Syria at at Adra. Mm -hmm. Do you have a a story perhaps that illustrates the, the kinds of relationships or connections that you formed with the other men in prison? So there, as I said, there were a handful of of stories. One of the the quick ones that I was meant that I would mention is that uh, I <laughs> I was wearing contact lenses and my lenses expired and I wasn't able to see. And the gar- the the other inmates actually facilitated a way for me to get a new pair of glasses and actually paid for my glasses for a complete stranger, someone they had never met, wow. and that proved to be it proved to be one of the brightest moments of my captivity and again really demonstrates the humanity that that I experienced in that place. Mm-hmm. And there's also sharing of a food, right? Yeah, we we cooked and shared food together. There was one time where uh, uh, the guards came in and just threw a bunch of uh, just a, a bunch of bread and rice in, in the middle of the cell and the the others, the other inmates who were all Syrians, they looked at me and they said, Sam, you are our guest. You eat first and then we'll eat. Yeah. And so I was uncomfortable with that, but I, I proceeded. And, and th- I think it just speaks to 
some of the best hospitality I've ever experienced has been across the Middle East. And uh, it, that is just one anecdote that speaks to that. Yeah. And then the guards, you'd mentioned the guards. How did how did they treat you? So overall, the the guards who I interacted with, I didn't get the sense that they had much influence over my case. But overall, they I wasn't able to to, to build a the relationships with them in a way that maybe I, I would have liked to or, or could have. But overall, um, I just did the the best I could with with them. Mm-hmm. Now you did make a. A friend, you befriended a, a fellow prisoner whom you still keep in touch with. Tell us about him and what your relationship with him is like now. Yeah, there are uh, a handful of them that that I that I stay in touch with today, and they're it's a little bit cliche, I think, but they're truly some of the the most incredible people that I've ever met. Uh, they have a handful of them have obviously also been released and we stay in touch today and they're in all sorts of different situations. Some of them are still in Syria. Some of them have fled to Lebanon or Turkey or, or into to Europe. And we stay in touch today and I've really tried to help them uh, in any way I can, especially after they helped me when I was at, uh, 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 when I was experiencing a challenging time. And so the really incredible people, uh, one of them recently invited me to his wedding in Damascus. Oh, and wow. and uh, you know, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it. But I, had, I, I developed some, some pretty incredible friendships there and super grateful for those. Mm-hmm. Now, during your time there, um, you were transported, obviously, from one prison to another. And when you were being transported to court in a van... You saw glimpses of Damascus, including an historical open market that you had hoped to visit. I mean, what was it like to be inside a country and also not really able to experience it in the way that you had hoped you would? Yeah, so I have kind of a complicated relationship with Syria, and I know that it's one of the most culturally, religiously, historically significant places in the world. Damascus is the oldest continuously inhabited capital in the world. And it was a place that I always wanted to visit and unfortunately wasn't able to do it the way that I wanted to. And uh, part of the the elements to that were, were seeing things that I had always wanted to visit. Um, but, you know, maybe we'll talk about it, but there have been so many good things that have come from this challenging time as well. Um, but I, I was a bit frustrated with, uh, with, with seeing those things and, and, and not being able to experience them in the way that I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And then the, the court and the trial, that was also quite something, wasn't it? Yeah, so I, I was taken to court four separate times, and uh, in all four sessions, the judge denied me a lawyer, denied me a translator. The Syrians continued to characterize me as a spy and a terrorist without providing any meaningful information about what might happen to me. It, it seemed as if the trial was taking place inside this ideological vacuum and was not going to be impacted by anything. I said or did. Mm-hmm. I mean, to what extent was that a surprise? You must have been prepared to some, I mean, as much as one can be. 
yeah, I, I had never been to, to court before uh, in, in my life. Uh, and so I didn't feel very prepared. Um, so I, w- I was really... Uh, I was really shocked and, and really uh, in, a, in a challenging situation. Mm-hmm. And what was it that you learned um, about Syria and its politics through your conversations with men in prison? So one of the, I would say the biggest challenges that I have with my story is the way that I portray the country of Syria, because through my travels, I have learned, as I mentioned, that truly among the best hospitality I've ever experienced anywhere in the world is is throughout the Middle East. And I am confident that if there wouldn't have been this miscommunication, if I wouldn't have had the experience that I had, my experience in Syria would have been overwhelmingly positive as it was every everywhere else across the Arab world. So I have a bit of a challenge with how I portray um, the country, but it's heartbreaking what the the country has experienced over the past uh, now 13 years since the Arab Spring reached Syria in 2011. And the people in Syria need a lot of prayers. Mm-hmm. So whether we're talking about what happened in court or what you were hearing from the, those men who were in prison with you, did you have... I mean, did you have a sense that that justice would somehow, at least, you know, in your case, be served? Yeah, I'm not sure that I that I knew exactly what to think on on that front. And the the resolution of the court proceedings. I mean, what ultimately happened there? Yep. So, uh, as far as I know, there was no there was no decision. I'm relatively. Uh, uh, maybe confident, too strong of a word, but I, I believe that the entire court process was just a, a sham and for show and that my case was being handled at a much higher national security level than what, what I was experiencing um, at, at court, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Well, you are here today, so something must have been happening. We need to take a quick break here, but we'll resume our conversation with author and traveler Sam Goodwin when we come back. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. Let's return to our conversation with Sam Goodwin. So let's go back uh, or get back to St. Louis and what was happening um, with your family while you were detained. How was it that they found out that you were not walking freely uh, in, in Syria as a tourist? The news of my disappearance was essentially learned through me going dark. I was always very good about keeping in touch, especially if I was in more of an unstable place. And I think there's a a point to be made here that in all hostage wrongful detainee cases, the 
family is experiencing their own form of torture. And we still have uh, Americans who are being wrongfully detained today, uh, whether it's in Russia or Iran or, or, or even in, in, in Gaza now. And every one of those hostages has a family that's experiencing the hardest thing they've ever gone through in their life. And when I went, went off the grid, uh, my family found themselves in that situation. Mm-hmm. Now, your sister called an old friend to share her distress about your detention because your family was told not to talk about your having gone missing. That family, that friend's family, that is, turned out to be connected to a a top Lebanese security official, Major General Abbas Ibrahim, who ultimately helped negotiate with the Syrian government to secure your release and to the point that you were making about things that were going on at, at higher levels. Take us back to the afternoon of July 26, 2019, and, and being reunited with your parents in Beirut, Lebanon. You were surrounded then by dozens of government officials and journalists as you embraced your mother and father. We'd like to have you read a little bit from your forthcoming book. Sure. As my parents, so I'll just mention this is a, a short excerpt from the author's note that I've written uh, actually at the beginning of the book. As my parents and I worked to rein in our emotions, I couldn't help but reflect on the tumultuous events I had experienced while inside Syria's Gulag archipelago. With a touch of innocence, I remarked to my parents, I have a story for you. A brief pause followed, during which my mom and dad exchanged a glance before my mom responded, well, Sam, we have a story for you too. When addressing hostage taking by authoritarian regimes or rogue non-state actors, uh, my friend and former FBI Special Agent Ali Soufan often says, It takes a network to defeat a network. In the case of this book and this story, that couldn't be more accurate. As I'm sure the CCTV footage inside Lebanon's general security director at headquarters that day would show, the reaction I had to my mom's comment was utter confusion because, as I would learn, while I was trapped on the inside, I had no idea about anything that had happened on the outside. And that's Sam Goodwin reading from his forthcoming book, Saving Sam, the true story of an American's disappearance in Syria and his family's extraordinary fight to bring him home. So you've written this book, and in it, it, you describe the the connections, the network that existed um, on the outside that you didn't know uh, was, was working on your behalf. After you were released, I mean, what did you learn about your family's network of people and their attempt to help? One of the most overwhelming things for me in the wake of this has been learning about everything that happened on the outside while I was trapped on the inside, none of which I knew during that time. And frankly, it's four and a half years later today, and I'm still saying thank you to people. I'm still learning about someone who who talked to a friend or made a phone call or said a prayer, whatever it might be. And I believe I will continue doing that. And so it's been overwhelming to to learn about all of these people who acted on my behalf, from people who loved me to people who had no idea who I was and everywhere in between. And it really speaks to 
<laughs> a number of different things from faith, family, resilience, survival, geopolitics, um, and just put so much into perspective and couldn't be more grateful. Mm-hmm. And to that point about people you didn't know, so you grew up here in St. Louis, your family still lives here, and you recently learned that a key part of your being here today and of being released was another family in St. Louis. Tell us about this part of what happened. Yep. So I'll recap a quick story. It was about halfway through the second month. And as you mentioned, I had a bit of a community in this uh, second uh, federal prison, kind of like general population. And one of them came to me and said that he could arrange uh, to, to basically smuggle out some communication on my behalf. And of course, he had my attention very quickly because I was desperate for communication. I was starving for communication. So long story short, I wrote a short letter uh, a note scribbled uh, uh, some some words on a on a piece of paper, and I gave it to him, and he smuggled it out of the prison, and that note was given to his friend, who then gave it to his relatives, who then called my uh, my father. This was in July of 2019 when I had been missing for about six weeks. And was able to relay a little bit of information, and this was the first time that my family had managed to, uh, to 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 hear anything from me. Later on, after I was released, I learned that that note had made it to my family, and uh, perhaps even more remarkably, I learned that my in my fellow inmates' connections were to a Syrian American family who lives now in all place of all places in St. Louis. And so it turned out that the phone call that was made to my father was actually being made from less than five miles away from our house, my, my parents' house in St. Louis. So I, I, I think it speaks to our increasingly interconnected world today and, and the power of networks. Mm-hmm. And you recently connected with this family who helped, what was it like, Sam, to meet them after all these years of not knowing who they were? Yeah, it, it, it's really remarkable. It goes back to what I was saying about how the overwhelming majority of people in the world are are, are well-intentioned and happy to help. And uh, we were able to uh, to connect and, and have dinner, and, and we, we sort of uh, found some humor when, when they apologized for having to have been so cryptic on the phone back in 2019, given all of the variables that, that, that were at play, but really, uh, fantastic people. And it, uh, also plays into this idea and the situation that I've experiencing with it being overwhelming to learn about all of the people who who were involved, uh, some of these things I'm still uncovering today. Mm-hmm. And you have a copy of that note, right? What does what is written on that note? Yep. So if I if uh, if I would have had a little bit more time and and maybe not have not have been as as stressed as I would at the time as I was at the time, maybe would have been able to write some things a little bit more clearly. But uh, essentially, the note had my father's name, and then it said, I'm safe, alive, I'm in Audra Prison, which is a Damascus Central Prison, uh, the U.S. Embassy in Beirut, I need consular help. And then I, I put a, a clue at the bottom of the note that 
uh, is also a St. Louis connection. Uh, I wrote that I always order the salmon at the Missouri Athletic Club, and this was a way to essentially uh, authenticate the fact that it came from me. So, mm-hmm. so I wanted uh, whoever received it, hopefully my family, if they did receive it, to know that uh, that it did in fact come from me. And, and this was another uh, St. Louis connection on this note that did end up playing a, a relatively significant role in uh, in in the story. Mm-hmm. So the the book I'd mentioned that it goes on pre-sale at the end of this month. Why write a book? There are several reasons that I wanted to write a book, th- three of which I could I could speak to right now. First, I simply believe in the power of storytelling. Second, um, I've known for a while that I wanted to write a book. Uh, as an American living and working overseas for seven years uh, in Asia and the Middle East and, and traveling to every country in the world, I believed I had a, a perspective uh, and experiences that others would find useful and helpful. Thirdly, and potentially most significantly, I, I would mention a uh, a friend of mine who is actually a, a big part of the book, a businessman in D.C. named David Bradley, and he talks a lot about what he characterizes as the sine curve of life. And it's this, if we remember trigonometry, this up and down, never-ending radio wave, and he says that we all ride this journey in our lives. And when we're at the top, and things are going well, it's important to have humility and gratitude and awareness, but nothing deeply good emerges from the top. It's at the bottom of the curve when things are challenging, when all of the growth happens. And when I reflect on this situation, it was a challenging time, but I've grown so much through this. And people ask me quite a bit, Sam, if you could go back, would you still travel the way you did or still go on this trip? And on one hand, I would never want to relive captivity and wouldn't wish that on anybody. But on the other hand, I would never want to, and more importantly, I would never want to give up everything that's come from it, the opportunity to meet some remarkable people, to grow in character and in faith and in understanding of the stuff in life that actually matters. Mm -hmm. And those two things go together. So simply put, why did I want to write this book? I believe that my story can help others unleash their story. Mm -hmm. And is there anything that the process of writing this book has taught you after after the the fact of what you went through in Syria? Writing's been somewhat uh, therapeutic. Uh, I've also learned that writing a book is a big project. (laughs) It's been a challenge to consolidate the information and and especially, you know, this is a book that includes heads of state, celebrities, high-stakes diplomacy, a travel journey to every country in the world, significant geopolitical implications. So bringing all of that together uh, as a first-time author has been a challenge, and, and, and I'm grateful to say that I've had support from, from my family and, and a, a great editorial team, and so uh, have been surrounded by, by, by a fantastic support system, but still a... Um, uh, a significant project to bring a book together. Mm-hmm. And finally, you know, you went to Syria to experience its heritage and culture. Then you ended up in its brutal prison system. Do you want to go back? Uh, actually, I just mentioned a couple minutes ago, but I have, I, I, I have kind of a complicated relationship with Syria. But I, I know that it is 
one of the most significant, historically significant places in the world. And so if, if there was an opportunity at some point, I would be I would be very interested in that. But there's quite a bit of political instability right now, and we'll have to see how that plays out. Sam Goodwin is a world traveler and St. Louis-raised author who's written a forthcoming book about being wrongfully detained in and released from serious notorious prisons in 2019. It is called Saving Sam, the true story of an American's disappearance in Syria and his family's extraordinary fight to bring him home. Today's segment was produced by Aula Kuziz. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.